Hi, and welcome to the KC Praxis Teaching of the Week. We hope that you enjoy this message from Liz Devon. Hey, everyone. Welcome to the KC Praxis Podcast. Uh, my name is Liz Devon, and I am part of the teaching team for Kingdom Community. And I'm super excited to be sharing with you all tonight um, as I record this. Um, we're going to be going through the teaching that was given um, at our last Praxis gathering just a couple days ago, um, and it's in in Acts chapter 19. So if you have your Bibles or your phones, um, that's where we're going to be spending the bulk of our time um, during this podcast. And um, as Jake likes to do, he likes to point out the things he's drinking while he is recording this, and I'm really boring. I am drinking plain old water out of a gray blender bottle cup. Um, thing. Um, I, like everybody else I know, I'm fighting this cold flu thing that's going around, um, and I find that water helps me a little bit more, so that's what I've been drinking pretty much all day, um, just trying to keep myself hydrated um, while we're fighting off this cold. Um, anyway, that's enough about that. Um, we're going to be in Acts uh, chapter 19, um, so if you're not there yet, um, take one more second, and then we're going to just kind of jump into our teaching. Um, in Acts 19, we see the Apostle Paul travel to the city of Ephesus, and I'm sure you all remember everything about the city of Ephesus from our study of Ephesians earlier this year, but for those of you who need a little bit of a refresher, here are some things about the city of Ephesus, and these things are going to be pretty important as we go through this, this teaching, so keep them in mind, in the back of your mind, um, as we go through this. The population at this time of the city of Ephesus, um, at this time in Acts, is about 250,000 people. The only cities that were bigger than Ephesus at the time were Rome, Alexandria, and Antioch. Some of the earliest inscriptions referred to Ephesus as the first and greatest metropolis of Asia. The official religion at the time was pagan, with an official covenant to the Ephesian Artemis, with up to 50 other gods and goddesses that were worshipped regularly. The Temple of Artemis is actually one of the seven wonders of the ancient world, and that was in Ephesus. The city also had a reputation as a center for the learning and practice of magical arts. Ephesus was a place of power. It was a port city, so anything that was coming or going to or through Asia was coming through Ephesus. For about 150 years, it served as the seat of the Roman administration for Asia Minor. As Rome was gaining power and land, they built these roads that kind of connected everything together, and they marked their miles from Ephesus. Ephesus was the place to be. Some of the greatest minds traveled through there. Their influence on the world was unmatched, and it flourished during the Roman Empire. And here we have Paul finally traveling to Ephesus. And we know from previous chapters and Acts that he wanted to go there, but was kind of waiting for the right time and waiting for the Holy Spirit to make a way for him to go. And it's finally happened in this chapter. And as we read through this section of, of Acts 19, um, I would like us to think about or consider something as we go through it. As we're entering this Christmas season, and it's Christmas uh, around here in, in Lodi, it started to rain, so that's usually a sign of Christmas. Um, and lights are going up and trees are going up. Um, as we're entering this Christmas season, are there parallels to the Christmas story that we find in Luke chapter 2 and what we're about to hear in the story of in Acts 19? So just something to think about. Keep that Christmas lens um, on as we read through Acts 19. So I'm going to start at verse 1 
Um, and then I'm going to just give some thoughts as we get through this section. So it's kind of long, so bear with me. While Apollos was at Corinth, Paul took the road through the interior and arrived at Ephesus. There he found some disciples and asked them, Did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They answered, No, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. So Paul asked, Then what baptism did you receive? John's baptism, they replied. Paul said, John's baptism was a baptism of repentance. He told the people to believe in the one coming after him. That is in Jesus. On hearing this, they, ba- they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. There were about twelve men in all. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly there for three months, arguing persuasively about the kingdom of God. But some of them became obstinate. They refused to believe and publicly maligned the way. So Paul left them. He took the disciples with him and had discussions daily in the lecture hall of Tyrannius. This went on for two years, so that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that he had touched were taken to their sick, and their illnesses were cured, and the evil spirits left them. Some Jews who went around driving out evil spirits tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, In the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. When this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and open, openly confessed what they had done. A number who had practiced sorcery thought, brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack here. Um, And as I said before, Paul knew the importance of Ephesus and wanted to travel there so he could reach all of Asia with the gospel. Paul is traveling to Ephesus when he stumbles upon a group of men who believe they are followers of Jesus but had no idea what had happened or that there was even a Holy Spirit. This is kind of amazing because over 20 years have passed since John the Baptist, who is the one that they were following. 20 years have passed since John the Baptist proclaimed the coming of Jesus, and so much has happened in that 20 years. However, even working with the limited information they had, they had faith in Jesus. They they just didn't know what to do next. They were disciples without a teacher. So Paul teaches them and baptizes them, and they receive the Holy Spirit and begin prophesying and speaking in tongues. And this event is often referred to as the Ephesian Pentecost. And as I was reading this and thinking about Acts, images of the first Pentecost began kind of flooding my mind. The first Pentecost happened earlier in the book of Acts, and I just wonder what these, how these men reacted to this. It's like they had a, a puzzle, a hundred-piece puzzle, and had 99 of those pieces, And the missing piece was the Holy Spirit. And all of a sudden, everything that they believed and had been taught just made sense. And I wonder what it was like for Paul, who, as far as we know, wasn't part of that first Pentecost earlier in Acts. And I just wonder if he rejoiced because he knew this was a small glimpse 
of what that original Pentecost was like. And I just wonder what, th- what, what went through their minds on this road to Ephesus. The great thing about being a disciple of Jesus is that we're all learners, right? We never stop learning and connecting the ways that God was at work in biblical times and how he is still at work in our own lives. And some of us have been on this journey for a a long time, so it's our responsibility to walk alongside those who are just starting, just like Paul did with these disciples on the road. And others of us are are just the beginning stages of this journey, and so it's our responsibility to ask for help. It's our responsibility to ask for someone to walk alongside us and teach us. And the best part about having the Holy Spirit with us is that he's always teaching and guiding us. If we pay attention, he is always encouraging us to look a little bit deeper or to look at our circumstances a little bit different, or to do something that we never thought we would be capable of, and to use all of that. He uses all of those things to teach us, and in turn, we bring God glory. And we see from this passage that these disciples didn't have anyone walking with them to teach them, but their posture was one of humility and hunger to know more about God. They could have easily written Paul off and said he didn't know what he was talking about, and they were just fine with the teachings that they had, but instead they listened and they learned and were baptized and they follow him to Ephesus. And this is the same posture that we're supposed to have. We don't know everything. Despite what I thought about myself in middle school, I didn't know any, anything really back then and I for sure don't know everything right now. And you don't know everything. But together we know more, and as we pursue truth together, the Holy Spirit will continue to lead and guide us. The next thing we read is that Paul begins teaching from the Jewish synagogue, which is his custom. When he goes to a new town, he tends to go to the synagogue and start teaching. And he spoke there in Ephesus at the synagogue for three months. But he didn't just speak. Luke writes that Paul spoke boldly. The Greek word for speaking boldly that's used in this passage is used six times in Acts, and each time it's to describe the ministry of Paul, his ministry among the Jews. Preaching the gospel to the Jewish people who were so close but so far from the gospel meant that Paul had to be bold in his teaching. It says that he had to argue persuasively, which is one of my worst nightmares. I am an Enneagram 6. I tried to avoid arguing and like confronting people, if I, if I can avoid it, I do. But he had to do, he had to argue persuasively about the kingdom of God, and he did that for three months. They didn't believe the message he was bringing and were getting angry at him and his teaching. And that kind of opposition required Paul to be bold. When he was done teaching, the text says that some of the Jews became obstinate, and this is also different from the other cities he's visited. From the other cities, the different synagogues, it says that like everyone was mad at him by the time he was done teaching, and everyone was throwing him out of the city or out of the synagogue. But here it just says that some became obstinate, which meant that some had hope, which tells me that the Holy Spirit was working mightily in Ephesus. After three months, he moved from the synagogue to the lecture hall of Tyrannius and held discussions daily. It's believed that Paul lectured and had discussions from 1 a.m. to 4 p.m. And one commentator wrote that at that time, during those specific hours during the day, the city would come to a standstill and most people would go home to take an afternoon nap or just take the afternoon off. However, Paul must must have been persuasive and captivating in his lectures because people came 
and gave up their downtime to hear and be part of this discussion that he was having. And as a result of Paul's consistent daily lectures over the course of two years, verse 10 says that all the Jews and Greeks who lived in the province of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Because of the popularity and all that Ephesus had um, in the city, people traveled from all over Asia for work or just to see the city. And it's believed that even people visiting the city would hear these lectures from Paul and take back what they had learned to their hometowns. And it's also believed that some of the disciples and co-laborers that Paul had with him traveled from Ephesus through Asia to establish churches all over the region. And in just two years, all who lived in Asia heard the gospel. The next verse says that God did extraordinary miracles through Paul, so that even handkerchiefs and aprons that had touched him were taken to the sick and their illnesses were cured and evil spirits had left them. The definition of a miracle is a highly improbable, extraordinary event. Something was happening in Ephesus. Remember what we said earlier about Ephesus being a center of learning and practicing magical arts? This comes into play right here. The people of Ephesus were looking for something bigger and powerful and were looking to the magical arts to provide that. However, through the power of the Holy Spirit, Paul was able to do these miraculous signs and wonders for the people. Simply by touching his garments or aprons, they were healed. Many of the actions that took place in Ephesus are related to, to the need to demonstrate the power of God over the forces of evil. And if you remember back to our Ephesians study, the last chapter of Ephesians talks about the armor of God and how it's our job to stand against the schemes of the, of, of the devil, of Satan. Paul's study of the magical arts and the powers of evil take place during his time in Ephesus in Acts 19. He saw firsthand people trying to use the name of Jesus as a party trick instead of as the savior of the world. And we see this clearly in the next scene of the story. And I would encourage you, don't miss the humor in this next scene. Just imagine what this would have been like for one of these guys who was trying to do this. It says this, some Jews went around driving out evil spirits and tried to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who were demon-possessed. They would say, in the name of the Jesus whom Paul preaches, I command you to come out. Seven sons of Sceva, a Jewish chief priest, were doing this. One day, the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I know about, but who are you? Then the man who had the evil spirit jumped on them and overpowered them all. He gave them such a beating that they ran out of the house naked and bleeding. So here we have some Jews trying to do the same thing Paul is doing. And truthfully, it worked for a while. Some commentators believe that this group of people was most likely taking money from people to perform their tricks. You know, give me so much money and I'll take that demon out of you. And can you imagine doing this and having it working for a while, but then one day... One random day, the demon that you're trying to, to take out of a person answers you back. And not only answers back, but confirms that Jesus has the power to remove him. And so does Paul, but these guys are nobodies. Then the demon proceeds to beat you up and send you home crying. Can you even imagine what that would be like? Some things worth noting about this group. The text says that Skeva was a Jewish chief priest. But as you start digging into the history, there wasn't a chief priest by that name. 
most likely because this group was successful for the most part at, at performing these signs and wonders, um, Skeva was, was most likely enjoying the notoriety and the title Jewish, Jewish chief priest was a self-given title. It's unknown whether he was actually recognized in the local synagogue as a leader. And there's something to take away from this section, I think. Um, as Christians, we have this gift of the Holy Spirit, and through him the impossible can happen. And just in our little group, in our little kingdom community, we have seen impossible things happen, right? We've seen impossible illnesses be healed. We've seen families who were at the breaking point, at these impossible you know, ends of things, come back together stronger than before. We've seen neighbors who are looking for places to belong and acceptance, and they were looking for those things in all the wrong places, not only find a place to belong, but a place to thrive among us. We've heard stories of missionaries walking into these impossible neighborhoods or these groups and leave not only unharmed, but with an invitation to come back and continue ministering in those areas. And the Holy Spirit is the only one who can make those things possible. He's the only one who can do do these amazing things among us. However, once we start bragging about these miracles in order to build up our own name or our own brand or to start taking money um, for, for financial gain or political power or standing, we can be overtaken by the enemy. And I think we've all experienced this in one way or another. When we let pride and ambition start to take over as the voice of the Holy Spirit, we will lose it all. We will go home beat up and bleeding and confused. Or if you're like me, (laughs) maybe when things like this happen, your tendency is to double down and force something to happen that shouldn't have happened. But at the end of the day, our name doesn't matter. Our brand, our reputation doesn't matter in the end unless we continually to give the God to, unless we continually give God the glory and praise that He is due. It isn't by us that these miracles happen. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit working through us. And Luke, the author of Acts, is very clear about this. He clearly makes the distinction that it was the Holy Spirit doing the healings and the miracles through Paul. It was not Paul doing these things on his own. And the next thing that, the, that this um, Acts 19 says is, when this became known to the Jews and Greeks living in Ephesus, they were all seized with fear, and the name of the Lord Jesus was held in high honor. Many of those who believed now came and openly confessed that what they had done. And a number who had practiced sorcery brought their scrolls together and burned them publicly. When they calculated the value of the scrolls, the total came to 50,000 drachmas. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And I'm always encouraged that God can use everything for his glory. Even the times when I mess up so badly, he can use those to teach myself and others exactly what not to do, right? And in this situation, he used the seven men who were beat up and bleeding to bring about a revival in Ephesus. Repentance was happening. People were turning away from their sins and their dark practices and turning their lives towards Jesus. They were burning the scrolls and materials that were once used in the dark arts and learning what the word of God had to say. The worth of those scrolls that were, that were burned was 50,000 drachmas, which some believe to be 50,000 days wages. Or another way to think about it, it would be that it would require 150 people working a full year 
to equal that financial amount. It wasn't a small amount of money. If the scrolls had been kept and sold, those funds would have made one person very rich. The money from the scrolls could also have been used to help a lot of people, but because of the content and the draw that that material had on the people of Ephesus, it was better to burn them and lose out on that money, out on that money in order to gain and train more disciples for Jesus. And this whole section ends this way. In this way, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. And as, you know, 2022 is wrapping up and we're looking to a new year, that is my prayer. My prayer is that the word of the Lord would move mightily and spread all over and keep growing in power in my life, in our community, and in our world. And at, this whole, at the beginning of this whole teaching, we looked at how Ephesus was the city of power, right? It had money flowing through it because it was a port city. It had influence because of the Roman occupation. It was trendy because of the sheer size of the city, and people wanted to come and see what was going on there. And now at the end of this teaching, at the end of this section in Acts 19, we see that Ephesus is still a place of power, but not because of the reasons we just listed. It's a place of power because God was moving mightily among them. God demonstrated that by his power, that is often found in impossible places, is bigger and greater than any power we can find here on earth. In his letter to the Ephesians, Paul writes um, in Ephesians 1.21 that God raised up Christ to a position far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, every title that can be given. This is power. This is power that cannot be taken away. This is power that is greater and mightier than anything else on earth. This is power that sees the impossible and restores it into something new. Do you remember how I asked you to, to think of this story through the lens of the Christmas story? Um, and I know you're probably thinking, what? <laughs> they don't have anything to do with one another. But I do think that there are some parallels that we can draw between Acts 19 and Luke chapter 2. So I'm going to read this section of Luke 2, starting at verse 1. Um, and then uh, we have, I have some thoughts. And we, we had a good discussion about this at our Praxis gathering. And I'm going to share a little bit about what was said. Um, and hopefully that will just be an encouragement to you. Um, Luke chapter 2 says this. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And everyone went their own, to their own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to their firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths, lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of heavenly hosts appeared with the, with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to those on whom his favor rests. 
When the angel had left them and gone into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby, who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning what had been told them about this child, and all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds had said to them. But Mary treasured these things and pondered them in her heart. The angels returned, the angels, the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which are just as they had been told. At the beginning of the story in the Gospel of Luke, you see again power on display. And I should say that the Gospel of Luke is written by the same Luke who wrote Acts. So this is told in the same voice. Um, the same kind of detailed writing um, is found both in the Gospel and in Acts. So here you see power on display again. Caesar Augustus is decreeing for everyone returning to their hometown so he can count them. Augustus came to power after an extremely terrible civil war and turned the Republic of Rome into an empire. Through their wars and takeovers, he declared that he had brought justice and peace to the entire world. Meanwhile, the true bringer of justice and peace was being born to a mother and a father who were not married, who were of meager means, and who had no place to stay in their hometown. The messengers of the big news were no other than the shepherds who were out sleeping in their fields with their sheep. And the thing about these shepherds is that they knew the Torah or the law, because that's how they grew up. When they grew up, they were, they were taught these things. But at some point, they were chosen not to continue this education. So they became shepherds. They knew parts of the story and the promises, but didn't have the whole picture of what their Messiah or Savior was going to do with the earth, with the whole world. And out of nowhere, they are visited by angels who tell them that the Son of God, their Messiah, was born, and they were supposed to go and see this baby lying in a manger. The shepherds witnessed a great gathering of angels who praised God for what had happened, and then they went and did as they were told. After visiting the baby, they went into town and told people what had happened, and it says that the town people were amazed. Are we starting to see some parallels? God seems to take great joy in using the most unqualified people to bring about revival in this world. In Luke 2, he used shepherds. In Acts 19, he starts with disciples who had no teacher. And in both of these chapters, chapters, people were amazed, and the word of God spread. Power here on earth is nothing compared to the power of God. Money, status, reputation, politics, whatever we would hold in high esteem comes crashing down next to the magnitude of the power of God. We know from history that the Roman Empire falls— they may have had the brute force to take over any territory. They may have had the brilliant minds to build roads and bridges that are still being used today. They may have had geniuses who invented and created the beginnings of things that we use in our modern world. But in the end, it all goes away. The greatest thing is that God chooses to demonstrate his power through us so that the whole world would know who he is. And our job is to, con con our job is to continue to share the gospel with those around around us and point them to Jesus. So as we're wrapping up this teaching, I guess the question really to consider and ponder is, what could next year look like? What would it look like for Kingdom Community to end 2023, glorifying and praising God for all we had seen him do? And for the word of the Lord to spread widely and move in power, what would it take 
for that to be true in our own lives? What would it take for that to be true in this community? And as we discussed this on Sunday evening, there were just a lot of really, really great answers to this. And it, um, two that just kind of stuck with me were, it would look like being a community that was unoffendable, <laughs> if that's even a word. People who weren't offended by everything that was said about them or said to them, but people who instead loved their neighbors, loved their people, loved the people who were even trying to offend them to push those buttons. It would look like a community of people who just chose to love. And then the, the other part would just be, why not us? Why could God not use us to start a revival in this town? He can use shepherds. He uses disciples without a teacher. Why wouldn't he use us? Why wouldn't he use us? Why wouldn't he use you? And no matter how that looks, or even if it seems daunting, the thing that we can trust is that the Holy Spirit is at work in and through us and is always going to be encouraging us and guiding us as we go. He continued to guide and lead Paul through um, the rest of the book of Acts, which we're going to continue diving into, and he'll continue to lead and guide you as well. That's what I want to leave you with, is why not us? Why, you know, God would, God could use us. Let's hold that openly this next year as we, we're starting to walk into 2023, which is crazy to say and to write down 2023. So let's pray for revival in our city and in our own lives, with our families, with our neighbors, our neighborhoods. How different would this community look if we, if we were the bringers of that revival? You know what, we would love to see you at our, our next Praxis gathering. Um, it, in December, we're actually not going to have another one until Christmas Eve. On December 18th, though, we're having our last community meal um, of 2022, and we're inviting all sorts of families from all across 180 programs to come and enjoy just one meal together um, as we kind of end 2022. And then on Christmas Eve at 4 p.m., we're going to be having a Christmas Eve service. It'll have We'll have hot chocolate and all sorts of stuff. It'll be super family-friendly. Um, and we would just love to see you there as we, as we wrap up 2022 and start entering 2023. Um, that's all I have for you guys. Have a great week. Hope to see you on December 18th. You can find us on social media as Casey Praxis or email us at caseypraxis at 180lodi.org.